Sports. We start with one of my favorite guests, Professor Declan Hill, University of New Haven in Connecticut, investigative journalist. He's an expert on corruption and sports. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Declan, thanks for coming on this morning. Hey, Mike, it's always an honor to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's great to have you here again. Let's start with the excitement here in Vancouver about the World Cup. So Vancouver has now officially been designated as a World Cup host city for the 2026 World Cup. It's been interesting to follow the bouncing ball on this one here in BC. We had a provincial government that at first wanted nothing to do with FIFA because the demands from FIFA were just too excessive. Then they did a flip-flop on it, got on board. Now, here we go with the World Cup coming to Vancouver. Proximate cost, Declan here for us in Vancouver, about $260 million. What do you think? Is it a good deal? Do you think we, think we should be happy about this? Uh, look, you know, just listen to the lineup of your show. We are talking about the smallest condos, you know, being sold for over 659000 bucks. People are, are cramming themselves into spaces smaller than, than prison cells. I think Vancouver's got a lot more uh, pressing needs than spending over $250 million on a sporting tournament. And most of those people in, that, in the stands when those games will be going on won't be people from the lower mainland. There'll be people coming in. There'll be a brief surge for hoteliers and the tourist industry. There'll be people paying well over the odds for those tickets. And then they'll leave, and they'll leave uh, an environmental mess behind, usually a white elephant of a stadium. These big sporting tournaments are not worth the money um, it, 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 it's not what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're just massive, massive problems with these things. Okay, well, the tourism sector here, though, is excited. Let me play a clip here for you from Walt Judas, who is the president of the BC Tourism Association, and he's quite happy that these games are coming to Vancouver. Let's have a listen. I'll get your thoughts. We know all the eyes of the world will be on Vancouver for those games. So much of the visitor economy will benefit, but so will the broader economy. You think it'll be good for the economy or no? I think it'll be good for his economy. I think it'll be good for the hoteliers, uh, as I said, in, uh, you know, in the first question. But look, for the rest of us, the people who are snarled up in innumerable traffic jams, the security nightmares, all these issues, I really think the uh, British Columbia administration had it right the first time and just said, hey, we don't want to deal with this. I presume the populace got involved and said, hey, Let's get stars in our eyes and, and lost the plot. But really, I, I got to say, come 2026 and once this tournament is over, a bunch of Vancouverites and lower mainlanders will be saying, what did we sign up for? Okay, get set to call me on this. I'm interested in hearing what the listeners think about the World Cup coming to Vancouver in 2026. $260 million, the estimated cost. I think that estimated. it could likely, yeah, estimated. it could go higher. Could go higher. Probably oh, will. it will go higher. It will go higher. And guys, just yeah. follow the money. Just say, mm. hey, you know what? We'd rather get 10,000 of us, pay them to go you know, to Las Vegas and watch the game, and it would be cheaper for Vancouver in the long run. Is, is FIFA still a corrupt organization, or have they cleaned it up? Yes, it's a corrupt organization. Essentially what they did was cut the head off the Gorgon and then two heads uh, brought back. Yeah. I mean, it, it really made corruption uh, normal inside FIFA. As most of your listeners know, in a few months we're going to have um, the World Cup in uh, a place, Qatar, which has essentially yes. made their sporting infrastructure out of slave labor. And these aren't my words. This is Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, an international labor organization around the world. And I just find that extraordinary. You know, like it's 2022 
It's not 1822, but but one of the world's largest sporting tournaments is going to be played in buildings and stadiums and infrastructure that were built by effective slaves. I found that extraordinary, just just bizarre. You know, it's as if we time warped ourselves back to the 19th century. Speaking of Declan Hill, investigative journalist, he's an expert on corruption in sports, University of New Haven. Declan, let me ask you about another story I find really interesting, and that is the rise of this new Saudi Arabia-backed golf league in competition with the PGA Tour. We continue to see more professional golfers defect over to this LIV golf series. Uh, I find it very interesting. Uh, Phil Mickelson, very prominent there. Greg Norman appointed uh, the CEO of the league. Let me play a clip here for you on the... You'll hear Greg Norman speaking here about this Saudi golf league and then some of the concerns about uh, the human rights records in Saudi Arabia. I'll get your thoughts. Have a listen. Live Golf has given them the opportunity for another pathway to to be the independent contractors, go play where they need to play, when they want to play, for more money. Former world number one Greg Norman is the public face of Live Golf. Its tournaments will last 54 holes, not the traditional 72. And former world number two Phil Mickelson has called that a progressive format. Progressive, though, isn't a word often used about Saudi Arabia, as its critics point out. What we're talking about here are severe, extensive, persistent human rights abuses. Okay, so despite the complaints and controversy, though, this league appears to continue to grow. What are your thoughts on it? Um, look, I was in Madrid uh, three weeks ago. I'd done a keynote speech, and I, I unfortunately made a mistake of booking an apartment right downtown. And, and it was a mistake because it was a Champions League final. Real Madrid, which is the dominant team in Madrid, won the European Champions League final. And so myself and 400,000 uh, Real Madrid fans were up until 6 in the morning. They, because they were celebrating their their team's victory, me, because I'm the Canadian going, guys, can you keep the noise down? And it wasn't working. <laughs> so I'm walking the streets, Mike. I'm walking the streets, and I'm looking at 400,000 people celebrating at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'm thinking to myself, and this is my field, but I'm, like, stunned that the power that sports have. There will be no other political or social movement in the world today that could get 400,000 people out at 4 in the morning jumping around, celebrating, banging drums. I don't care what environmental movement, I don't care what, you know, stock thing was going on. There's just nothing like sports and the power of sports to motivate people. And so the Saudis, the Qataris, FIFA, all these organizations that we've been talking about this morning, they know this. And they link, they want to link to that power. And that's what the Saudis are doing. The Saudis are beyond rich. I mean, they're just so staggeringly wealthy. They've got all kinds of problems. You know, women until a few months ago were banned from driving. People were thrown in jail for pointing out that this might not be a good thing to have. All kinds of issues. Uh, 83 people were beheaded a couple of months ago, some albeit criminals, but some just human rights activists. And so what the Saudi guys have done is they're saying, we're not going to change our system, but instead we're going to bring in high-profile sporting events. We'll throw billions of dollars at these things. And people will get so caught up in the glamour of heavyweight boxing um, uh, events or just yeah. live golf stuff, some of the esports things that are going on there. In Qatar, it's the World Cup. So it's kind of a, a, a dancing Potomkin village. They were all supposed to be caught up with the image and the glamour of sport, and we're never supposed to look around behind and see the ugliness. All right. 
Uh, at that point, let me jump in there, Declan, take a quick break. We'll come back with more. My guest is Declan Hill, University of like New it. Haven. Uh, we'll take, and on the other side, let's open the phone lines too. So phone me on any of this if you have a comment or question. I would love to hear from you about your feelings on the World Cup coming to Vancouver in 2026. $260 million. We'll maybe get, well, it looks like we might get five games here. Maybe five games at BC Play Stadium. Phone me. Tell me if you think that's worth it. It's extraordinary to me to turn on any sporting event these days and see just the saturation advertising for legal gambling here in Canada, the United States. Seems like it's everywhere. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? Um, I think it's a really tricky one. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of uh, mass societal hypocrisy. I think sports gambling is around. I think a lot of people do it. But I'm really, really worried about the number of ads, as you correctly you know, asked me, during hockey games, uh, particularly because of the effect on young people, particularly the effect of kids. I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, one of those big hockey players say, everybody tomorrow wear purple socks. Every kid under the age of 12 is going to be wearing purple socks. Every young man from your young male teenager from 14 to 18 is going to do pretty much anything those guys tell them to do. And you've got this bombardment of gambling ads, both during the games linked to these players, but also some of the players themselves, both former and current players are saying, oh, this is my official bookmaker. This is my official sponsor. And that's really, really dangerous. I don't think we would allow that with, say, tobacco or alcohol, which are addictive products. Gambling also is an addictive product, so I'm really concerned about its effect on young people. Yeah, do you think that we will see a surge in gambling addicts, especially among young yeah. the young people? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, we've already seen this. I mean, the U.S. is a little bit ahead of us. Uh, their Supreme Court uh, changed that decision May 14, 2018. I was talking to one of the gambling addict um, addiction experts down here. He said it's it, it's doubled, and that's just what wow. they're seeing. That's just what they can count i.e. the people who are coming to them. There's a whole bunch of addicts out there who never get treatment, who never come to them. Uh, but it's at least doubled down here. Declan Hill is my guest. Let's squeeze a call in here. Sean on the line in New West. Hi, Sean. Go ahead. Hey, so I'm supposed to be led to believe that the world is burning down because of fossil fuels, but yet we're, in, we're inviting hundreds of thousands of people to jump in an airplane that burns fossil fuels to come in and enjoy a game. Uh, to me, the hypocrisy is in- incredible. Okay, well, I guess some people have have complained about the environmental footprint of some of these big world events. I, I think for a, a lot of people, uh, the more immediate concern is whether it's it's worth the money. Like in in, ter- in Canada here, Declan, as you know, for the 2026 World Cup of Soccer, can- uh, Vancouver and Toronto are the two host cities here. We're expected, we've been promised 10 games total in Canada, so it sounds like Vancouver could get five games here, maybe more. Does that make it better? Because I remember at the start here, there were thoughts, maybe you'd only get three games, but now maybe we'll get five or six games. Oh, well, first, uh, Sean, brother, I, I uh, you know, appreciate phoning. I, I don't know anything about the environmental stuff, and I don't want to come on Mike's show and start blurbing away about the environmental stuff. Yeah. It's just outside my daily work. It's an important question, and I'll bet you Mike will have somebody on the show that can answer that question, but it's just it's beyond me, and I'm sorry. I don't want to be dodging questions in a, in a, in a fake or false way. Um, it, as far as, as, as how many games there are, look, um, you know, I, I invite listeners to just do their research in the 1976 Montreal Olympics. That only got paid off finally by the city 40 years later. And my fear is the FIFA contracts 
that they're setting up now in 2022 are even more onerous on host cities and provinces than anything that was going on in the 1970s. So really, look at the environmental impacts, look at the security issues, look at the traffic issues. The FIFA executives demand lanes just for themselves. So it doesn't matter how many traffic jams it causes, doesn't matter how many problems it has, they've got to have dedicated lanes just for their own personal transportation and just on limos. So the public (laughs) tax be paying for limos for these guys. I'm not a nabob of negativity. I want 250 million bucks spent on the people of British Columbia and Vancouver. I, you know, every listener, almost every listener now, has a story that they could tell about, um, a, 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 you know, an athlete, a young athlete that needs a better hockey stick or a better opportunity or more resources, or a disabled athlete who, who who's overcoming some kind of challenge. I'd love that that money to be put towards our own. Okay rather than putting on a marquee event for foreigners to come in, swan around our cities, and then go off leaving us with a mess. Declan, it's always awesome to have you on here with your thoughts. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. It's always an honor. All right, here we go with our great Bitcoin debate on the show today. The crypto crash of 2022. Let's see how much uh, Bitcoin is trading for right now. Just looking at the exchange. So this is in U.S. dollars, a single Bitcoin right now at this moment, $20,863 U.S. That is down on the day, just over 1%. So Bitcoin down about 1% on the day. But when you take a look back at the recent bleeding here in one month, in the past month, Bitcoin down almost 30%. In the past six months, down 59%. So 20, just over 20,000 for a single uh, Bitcoin right now. Is this a crash? Is this showing the cryptocurrency is going to crash and burn and be doomed? Or, I mean, some people are saying, well, maybe it's a buying opportunity. Got a great panel standing by on this. Now, first, have a listen to this. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general, hot issue in Canada right now, especially with the federal conservative leadership race going on. Pierre Polyev, the conservative MP, considered the front runner for the job here. He's a big booster of Bitcoin. Uh, says he has described crypto. He wants Canada to be the capital of cryptocurrency in the world. He believes that cryptocurrency could be a good firewall against inflation. Man, when you take a look at how Bitcoin has crashed here, he's taking a lot of heat for that position. Have a listen to this exchange here. In a recent Conservative Party leadership debate here, you'll hear Patrick Brown running against Polyev here for the party leadership going after Polyev here. Then Polyev responds back. Have a listen to this. I disagree with Mr. Polyev's approach that you can opt out of inflation with cryptocurrency. Um, Magic internet money fluctuates vastly, uh, 30% or more in one day. And the last thing we should be doing is encouraging our parents and grandparents, along with vulnerable families, to gamble their savings, their retirements in something this risky that's been learned watching late-night YouTube videos. (laughs) Mr. Polyev. Well, Mr. Brown, that's not what I said. You're, mis- you're, you're misleading the, the public. I clearly stated that people should have the freedom. Now, the reason why many people have chosen to exercise that freedom is because central banks have been attacking the value of our national currencies by printing $400 billion here in Canada, leading to 30-year highs in inflation, doubling the house prices, 
leading to massive volatility in many sectors of our economy. And that, that risk is one I pointed out earlier on and could lead to another debt crisis. All right, let's discuss now with our panel. We have both sides of it for you. Andy Barrar, he's a tech and digital lifestyle expert. HandyAndyMedia.com is his website. He's skeptical of Bitcoin. Hey, Andy. Hi, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Adam O'Brien is the founder and CEO of Bitcoin Well. It is a Canadian Bitcoin company. Pleased to welcome him back, Adam. Thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you guys, both of you, for being here. Adam O'Brien, let me go to you first. When you take a look at how Bitcoin has crashed here over the last six months, I mean, this has got to be, is this worrying for you and your customers? No, not at all. I think that the value proposition for Bitcoin hasn't changed. I think anyone talking about the crash of Bitcoin has a certain amount of recency bias. And when you look at the Canadian dollar over time, it has done nothing but decline in value uh, since its inception. And I think Bitcoin has done the opposite if you zoom out uh, to any reasonable amount of time, you know, one plus years. So I don't think the value prop has changed at all. I think that Bitcoin is still the safest place to store value that you need in, in the long term. Andy, what do you say to that? Well, Mike, you know, proponents of crypto have long said that it was a good hedge against inflation. And so this is really the first time that crypto has been tested with inflation. We have 40-year highs and also rising interest rates. And it's no coincidence that as soon as that announcement was made about the high inflation, that the crypto markets dropped. So on its first test, it has not proven to be very well a good hedge against inflation. Okay, that's In fact, it's probably the riskiest asset that's being dropped right now. Okay, that's an interesting point. And Adam O'Brien, what do you say to that? Because the idea of cryptocurrency being some kind of firewall against inflation right now was popularized by Pierre Poliev here over the last couple of months. But here at the time when we see soaring inflation, we see Bitcoin crashing at the same time. What do you make of the intersect of those two events? Yeah, I think that, you know, another knock on Bitcoin is that it's not liquid. People argue that you can't get liquidity. And I think that this is proving to be the opposite. And, and Bitcoin is one of the most liquid assets on planet Earth, which is uh, both a good thing if you want to access your money, but um, also causes people to, to move to Bitcoin first. I think that if selling your house was easier, if your car was easier to sell, um, then people would be selling those assets in order to pay for the, the skyrocketing cost of living that is happening right now. But they're moving towards liquid savings. And, and right now, Bitcoin is the most liquid form of savings. And so while it's just kind of pimply teenager, as Bitcoin moves through its adolescent journey into uh, being a, a pure form of sound money um, for the world, I think that we're going to continue seeing some volatility. But eventually, uh, it will continue to thrive as the safest place to store value long term. Andy Barrar, your thoughts? Well, all you have to do is look at the news that happened with Celsius Network, which was a Bitcoin trading platform. And they were trying to act like a bank where you would deposit your Bitcoins. They would then take that and loan it out to someone else. Well, a lot of people in this crash, a lot of people wanted to withdraw their Bitcoins and they had to halt the transactions, the withdrawals. So people who want to get their money out can no longer get their money out. Wow. Adam, what do you say to that? Yeah, I, I like. I don't think Celsius is a Bitcoin trading platform. It's a Bitcoin lending platform, and um, I agree that platforms that try to act like the Bank of Canada or like le legacy banking in the fiat system, they will fail uh, because the legacy fiat system is garbage. And Bitcoin is a pure form of sound money. And when you own and hold it yourself, and you don't leverage it, and you use it like savings and not like, like a leveraged asset, then that's where it benefits. But I super agree that the Celsius network is an absolute debacle. 
And, uh, and there should be some significant learnings that you do not give your Bitcoin to someone else. You should not treat your Bitcoin like the Bank of Canada treats the Canadian dollar. You should treat your Bitcoin like sound money, hold it in your own control, and, and always look to it as a, as a pure form of sound money. Hey, Adam, let me ask you about one of the most common complaints about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general. And you heard Conservative Party leadership candidate Patrick Brown reference that in the exchange we played there, where he referred to it as magic Internet money. Like, where is the underlying or underpinning value of Bitcoin? Like, if, if I was to go out today and, and buy an ounce of of gold and I was to hide it away in a safety deposit box or something like at least then the price may go down the value may go down but I know I've got a gold a gold coin hidden away somewhere like what do you have with Bitcoin well what, what do you have in the gold coin well you've got a you've got a piece of precious metal well, right what is that good for uh, well, well you, t- you tell me your thoughts on it like what is the difference <laughs> but what I think I'm difference? bringing my point there Mike where like you know, value is in scarcity, and 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 there are there are many different principles of sound money. Uh, the I think the the biggest uh, points of sound money are that you need to have scarcity. It needs to be transferable. It needs to be fungible. It needs to be divisible. Um, and Bitcoin in, in, in captures all of those points uh, perfectly, better than gold even. And and you know the idea that that other precious metals have this this you know. Uh, value because they're they're physical is is quite funny to me because if, if if we actually look to metal to be valuable and that's what graded value i think that like you know oil or tungsten or aluminum would be some of the most valuable assets on planet earth but we don't look mm. to stores of value that way uh gold is it was a useful metal there are far superior metals to be using and and yes it's in electronics and and, and certain things but so is oil um, and so I don't think that that argument stands true. I think that the value prop for Bitcoin is rooted in the, in the, in the math and is rooted in the, in the code base uh, that, that gives Bitcoin its kind of underlying value. Okay. Okay. Andy Barrar, what do you say to that? Well, if you look at gold, gold has value because it has intrinsic inherent values being a metallic property. It's the one, you know, it can conduct electricity. So you could use it in commercial applications. You could wear it as jewelry. And that's why people hold on to gold, especially when, you know, times are rough. That's the kind of investments people do, because at the end of the day, you can use that gold in industry, you could use it to wear it, and you can just use it to store your value. And that you cannot wear Bitcoin. And that's the the big difference. It's not digital gold. To me, it's fool's gold. I mean, I could... Go ahead, Adam. I could put a bunch of dandelions around my neck and wear it like jewelry, but dandelions aren't very valuable. So I don't think that just being able to wear something makes it, that's not what gives it its, 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 its long-term value. Hey, Andy, let me ask you both where you sort of see this roller coaster going here. Now, we've seen like a significant drop in Bitcoin over the last few months. Andy, do you see that? Like, what's your reader analysis of the future here? Do you see the cryptocurrencies continuing to fall or could they or could they stabilize or rally? Well, one thing I'm hoping to not see is it to go mainstream. You know, we, we saw that people were trying to make this as a mainstream thing where mom and pop investors would start investing in it. And I think this is a good lesson to show the volatility of crypto. And if you're going to invest in it, you know, you got to buckle up because your money is going to go on a roller coaster ride up and down. And if you want to sleep at night, well, you know, you probably want to stay away from those kinds of investments. Adam, what do you say? Yeah, I think that the value prop hasn't changed. I think that, you know, buying Bitcoin in small increments um, on a weekly basis 
um, in a responsible way is the safest thing to do with your money. It is very, very risky not to own Bitcoin right now. With the way that the governments control uh, and distribute money, uh, it is very, very risky not to own Bitcoin. The price in the short term doesn't really matter. I mean, three years ago, if we'd been talking about a crash to $20,000, we'd think uh, we were absolutely insane because Bitcoin was far less than that. So when you zoom out and you look at the way that, that the Canadian dollar has acted over the last 10 years, and then you compare that to how Bitcoin has acted over the last 10 years, uh, it's a very, okay. very clear savings potential. Okay, guys, let me jump in there. We'll fit a break in here right now, and then we'll come back with more. My guests are Andy Burrar and Adam O'Brien, and it's our Bitcoin debate. So we're looking at the value of Bitcoin, which is gone down significantly over the last six months, cryptocurrency. Remember how Pierre Polyev put this on the political map here in Canada. He wants Canada to be the crypto capital of the world. He's very bullish on Bitcoin. Phone me and tell me what you think about this, about Bitcoin, about cryptocurrencies. Are you, do you have any crypt, uh, cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin? Are you worried about the fall? Would you put money into this? Or uh, do you think it's a, a scam or do you think it's legit? You phone me right now and let me know what you think. Chris on the line in Surrey. Hi, Chris. What do you think? Hi. I'm just wondering about Bitcoin. You pay for it with cash out of some of these machines or wherever you buy it. But if you wanted to sell a Bitcoin, where would you go to get the money? Well, let me ask Adam. Adam, how does it work when you sell it? Most of those machines also uh, give you cash. Uh, or, I mean, to be shameless here, you can go to BitcoinWell.com and receive an Interact e-transfer directly into your bank within a couple of minutes. Um, if it's for larger amounts, then you can, uh, then you could, you know, you can get larger amounts over ten thousand dollars deposited directly into your bank, um, or of course a, a bank draft for cash. What are the service so charges? Uh, what are the service charges like when you sort of buy and sell? Uh, it, it varies based on the the amount that you're selling, much like a gold uh, broker would. Um, so anywhere from from one uh, percent to upwards of three four percent. Scott and Maple Ridge on the line. Hi, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, there's nothing special about Bitcoin. In fact, Bitcoin is inferior to other other pseudo you know crypto coins. It, it is it is essentially tulip mania of 1637. It's based on nothing. If people get into it for just to make money, you can't do anything with it. I when he said he actually said the words, you don't give your Bitcoin to anybody. You just keep it yourself in your own account. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want my money doing nothing? It is that is the most ridiculous reason to have Bitcoin I've ever heard. People don't want their money doing nothing in an inflationary period. They want it earning interest so that they can keep up with inflation. Bitcoin is just a joke. I'm sorry. Okay, Adam, what do you say to him? Yeah, I mean, right now your interest is not keeping up with inflation. So I agree that the fiat system that we have uh, is you absolutely have to gamble your money in order to just, just, just to keep up with inflation because of the mismanagement of our monetary policy. When you have sound money, when you have hard money, you don't need to give it away. You don't need to gamble it because it in and of itself, the monetary policy of Bitcoin protects you from that inflation. Uh, right now, there's a lot of people that have had to gamble their, with, with, with pensions, gamble with, gamble with stocks, gamble with mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and they are all underwater okay. um, and, on the long term. Andy Barrar, what do you want? You want to weigh in here? Go ahead. Yeah, I agree with the caller. This is Tulip Mania 2.0, and, you know, people have said this for a long time, and, and this is what we're seeing. You know, compared to gold, if I have a gold coin and say I'm, in, you know, in the middle of nowhere and I need gas, 
I'm pretty sure I can go to somebody and say, oh, give me some gas for this gold coin. If I have a Bitcoin, which you can't even hold, it's not even tangible, no one's going to even do anything. There's even a crypto-themed restaurant, Mike, in L.A. that no longer accepts crypto. The irony <laughs> is not escaping. Okay. Okay. okay, Steve on the line in the West End. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Hi there. You know what? I think the more choices we have as currencies, the freer society we are. So, you know, I think that's good for crypto and, and Bitcoin. Fine. However, <laughs> the issue I have is if someone's slagging gold, which has been around for 5,000 years and coveted by central banks today and held by the tonnage, then and, and to dismiss the value of that as dandelions, I think it's a bit juvenile. Um, and also, it's a very Western-centric. I mean, you look at China and India coveting gold for thousands of years. Uh, you know, this cannot be dismissed. Adam O'Brien, what do you say to him? Yeah, I would agree, which I think gives the Canadian dollar absolutely no value if Canada just sold off the last of our gold reserves this year. So I think that uh, our money, as we see it right now, has no value because it is not, quote-unquote, backed by anything mm-hmm. like this gold uh, that is not being held by, by the tonnage by any government. I think for the last Ash. century, the U.S. dollar has not been covered or has not been backed by gold. Ash in Vancouver, 30 seconds. Go ahead. Okay, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, um, they, they call it cryptocurrency. It can't be a currency if the value fluctuates so much. It could be an asset at best. Okay, Adam, what do you say to that real quick? Well, I mean, the Canadian dollar fluctuates by the second. Um, so, I, I mean, I disagree. Okay, uh, uh Andy, I'll give you the last word. You got 20 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, so crypto is basically a category of investments known as alt alternative. So it's in that same category as fine arts, wines, and precious metals. But if you want to go against the, the currency, invest in gold. Do not invest in this fake digital gold okay. that is crypto. Okay. Thanks, guys, for a good discussion. Andy Barrar, Adam O'Brien, that was our Bitcoin debate. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Vancouver's housing crunch now. The sky-high rents out there, the difficulty in finding a decent, affordable place to rent or buy, and some of the extremely small places that are on the market right now. This is how desperate things have become in Vancouver. Earlier this week, we told you about Vancouver's smallest condo currently for sale in the city on Hornby Street, five, 358 square feet, 358 square feet, no kitchen, no laundry. It does have a hot plate and a bathroom. The asking price, $659,000 right now. Talk to the realtor who's selling this place on the show earlier this week, Norm Jurasky, and he told me, okay, yeah, this place is probably not suited for a family. Yeah, I don't think so. Have a listen to what he had to say. The, the person that's living there is probably not a family. It's a couple or an individual who needs to work downtown or wants to live down there and have access to everything. And it's some of the priciest real estate in the city. Yeah, for sure. It's a high-rent district down there on Hornby Street. This is basically a hotel room that you can buy as a condo right now, $659,000, the smallest condo for sale in Vancouver. You want to go even smaller? Let's go into the, the microverse here now. Check this one out. You've got a room for rent in Vancouver 
It's so small that you have to be a small person to live in it. Basically, basically, we're talking like a hobbit hole here. Although I think it might it might not be big enough for a hobbit. the The real the uh, renter is saying that if you are over five feet nine inches tall, you might have a tough time fitting in this room. So it would be more suitable for a small person. Seven hundred and fifty dollars a month is the rent. Now that sounds like a good deal, right? Seven hundred and fifty bucks, but it's thirty square feet. Thirty square feet. That's around like half the size of a prison cell. This is how desperate the situation is right now. And people are looking. I bet you someone rents it though, because times are so tough. People are so desperate. I bet someone does rent that room for seven hundred and fifty a month. Let's check in with Robert Patterson now, Tenant and Resource Advisory Center. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Robert, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Robert, what do you think of that one? 750 bucks. It's basically a, a room in an, an already a very tiny studio apartment in downtown Vancouver, but $750 for a teeny tiny 30 square foot room. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's not something that's very surprising. I've heard of some relatively similar cases. I think it's a sign of just how deep and how troubled our housing crisis is uh, that, you know, tenants have to find that you can't even rent a studio apartment on your own uh, on sort of what you'd imagine to be an average rent. You need to subdivide and subdivide to try and find other roommates to to make those rents. It just goes to show how unaffordable uh, rents have become in the city. Yeah, and it's not illegal to rent out a tiny little room like that, right? Like in a shared accommodation scenario? Yeah, in, under sort of the provincial laws about tenancy, there aren't sort of minimum standards for square footage. So people who want to have extra roommates, they, they're allowed to ha- enter these kind of arrangements. And I mean, in, in charity to the person renting that, I'm sure that this person isn't going to be confined only to that 30 square foot room. Hopefully they they get access to the common areas as well. But yeah, it just it goes to show that there's just... Um, it's such a difficult place out there if you're a renter, uh, you know, especially you know, if someone uh, has a not even just a lower income or an average income, uh, it can be absolutely brutal trying to find some, something. And there's almost certainly be, to be nothing affordable out there. Yeah, I spoke to a guy on the show a couple of weeks back, Robert, who lived with his mom in Delta in a house there. And they had a spare room that they decided to rent out and they decided they were going to ask $500 a month for this room because they didn't want to soak someone. They wanted to help someone who was, who needed a place. Mm-hmm. And his phone blew up with calls and texts and emails from people desperate to rent this, this tiny room in a, in a house. They ended up renting it to a single mom because they decided to take the most, basically the, the person who needed it the most is who they decided to rent to. I mean, for me, it was like, you know, these stories that we're hearing, I mean, you hear them every day. I mean, is this what's going on every day that people are that desperate to find a place right now? Absolutely. I think it really goes to show that like the tools that we're trying to use to solve our housing crisis just aren't working. I mean, and there's a number of things that are all coming together that cause this, you know, like, let's look at the low-income tenant example, the shelter rate in British Columbia. So what people on uh, disability assistance or, or low-income assistance get for their shelter is still 375 uh, You cannot rent anything in this city for 375 in the lower mainland, really, for 375 Um 
if we look at sort of a bigger picture in terms of housing units just in general, I think we've seen that by leaving leaving the housing market simply up to private developers, they're going to only sort of chase profits by building luxury units. And we're not going to see the kind of housing that we need in the city, which is just aff- affordable housing that people can actually live in. Uh, we get sort of a situation instead where, you know, people have to have to enter into these kind of arrangements to try and make living in the city work. Speaking of Robert Patterson, Tenant Resource and Advisory Centre, we live in a province that has rent control, right? So you cannot legally jack up the rent above a set limit. Like, what is the maximum rent increase this year? So the maximum rent increase for 2022 is 1.5%. But what that is, is a control on rent during a tenancy. So if a tenant ever moves out or if a landlord evicts a tenant, they can reset the rent back to whatever they want. So because of that, it's not actually rent control as it's usually understood. It's effectively a rent stabilization as it's normally, normally called. Um, so what that, I mean, what it means is if you rent a place, you can be, a tenant can be confident, you know, they're not going to get a 30, 40% rent increase, you know, year over year, which is what we've seen right. in a number of jurisdictions actually, uh, where that they, they don't have rent stabilization. Um, and that's led effectively to mass, evic- mass effective evictions without any tenant doing anything wrong. Um, but it also, I mean, there's also limits to that, that process as well, because it creates a financial incentive to evict tenants. And, you know, that led to a rent eviction yeah. crisis. I think right now it's leading to a new kind of eviction crisis. We're seeing a massive spike in landlords claiming that they're going to move themselves or family members into rental units to, and it's always, it's always low in, low income tenants in affordable units that uh, the people are claiming to be moving into, or, or at least the majority of the time. So I think, uh, you know, rent stabilization is good for tenants, you know, making sure people have some stability in their housing. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's in terms of like protecting people's people's housing long term. I mean, ultimately, what we want to do is create an environment where people can have affordable rents and and set put down roots and live in their communities. And whether it's you know allowing tenants to be evicted or allowing their rents to be jacked up by any percentage the landlords want, either of those things defeats that goal. Right. Like if you are fortunate enough to live in a decent, affordable place right now that you're renting and you've got a lease in place, I mean. You know, people are just going to hang on to that like like gold. You don't want to let that place go. And if you're looking at a 1.5% rent increase this year under provincial law, I mean, you're going to be breathing a sigh of relief that you're in that situation. But I'm sure you are hearing from, are you hearing from a lot of people who are being like evicted from the places that they're in and now they're looking at a massive rent hike when they, to find a new place? Oh, absolutely. Anyone who's evicted yeah. can, I mean, unless they are, their, their tenancy just really began the last 12 months uh, or last six months, really, with how how quickly rents are going up, they can't find something that they can afford at the same price level. And I mean, I think there's there's data that shows that this is a this phenomenon is not new. Um, the BBC study on evictions that came out last uh, last fall showed that effectively the further away you get from the metro core of Vancouver, the more likely it is that someone's been evicted in the last five years. To the point where I think uh, at the sort of the outer band of the lower mainland, something like 20% of people had had an eviction in the last five years. I think what that means is you see people are being evicted from their their communities and have to go further away from their places of work, their places of living, to new places to try and chase affordable rents. But as you know, you know your Delta example really illustrates the rental problem is is not just getting worse in Vancouver at, at the epicenter; it's bleeding out everywhere. Um, yeah. there's really no yeah. affordable things anywhere anymore. Yeah, no, it really is. It really is a, a crisis that's beyond the borders of Vancouver proper. When you take a look at the rent control system that we have in British Columbia, we touched on that a bit. 
it's tied to inflation, right? Like, so annual yeah. rent allowable increases are indexed to inflation. Now, if you take a look at inflation right now, the latest stats can numbers out this week, 7.7% inflation rate last month, highest in 40 years. How is that going to work for next year? Like, are people looking at a massive potential maximum rent increase next year if it's indexed to inflation, which is going through the roof? Yes, that is absolutely a risk if there's not some change in policy about how the amount is, is, is determined. An increase in inflation will also mean that increase. I'd also say last summer, uh, the, the Residential Tenancy Act was amended to allow a new additional rent increase for landlords who can who apply for an additional top-up on top of whatever the base percentage is in certain cases where they do certain major capital repairs. So the, that I'm, our organization is a little concerned about that, that rule right now. We're, we're sort of keeping our eye on a number of cases right. where you know, it's meant to be incentivizing landlords to do major repairs, major upgrades, but it seems like a lot of landlords are trying to sneak in cosmetic repairs or just regular maintenance things um, and trying to get that extra percentage. So oh. there, you know, we're, there's a potential fear that even if you're in a tenancy, the inflation plus potential other additional rent increases could mean that even people in those situations see their tenancies on, at risk. On the other hand, though, I hear frequently from landlords who say, look, Inflation is squeezing me too. Like all my input costs are going up. And if you have a government now who is going to come in and, and put another cap on the maximum rent increase next year, you may have landlords say, you know what? This is not worth it for me anymore. And I'm just going to get out of this business. I'm not going to rent out the suite in my home anymore. Like, is that a risk if it goes too far? Like, what would you say to the landlords who I'm sure are listening to this right now and saying, well, what about me? Like, I'm getting squeezed too. For sure. I mean, I think it's a situation where tenants and small tenants and small landlords are really in very similar boats. It's not a question of really competing interests. It's more like everyone's getting the squeeze. You know, a tenant's, tenant's uh, wages aren't going up and their expenses are going up. You know, you, as the news uh, reels just before we started talking, talked about, you know, 50% of Canadians having difficulty paying their grocery bills. I mean, those 50% of people are, I think, more likely to be tenants because on average, tenants are those who don't have as much as landlords. So I think it's a it's a it's about a question of how we balance, you know, housing is something that we need to provide to people in our community. We have a sort of collective responsibility and we have to decide how how we solve that problem. Um I mean the last time that we had I think a healthy housing market was a time when we had a massive public investment in housing where we had uh, you know maybe a more a bigger acknowledgement that we need to work together right. and come up with new solutions as opposed to leaving it to private individuals to sort stuff out. So okay. I totally understand many small landlords' complaints. I just hope that they have empathy for their tenants as well, who, you know, they're, are seeing their own wages effectively decrease thanks to inflation uh, and can't afford any higher rents anyways. Robert, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, here we go now with Canada's passport problems, the backlogs, the long waits to get a passport, the lineups outside of passport offices. We saw more long lines outside of passport offices in Vancouver and Surrey this week. Things are especially dire in other Canadian cities, notably Montreal, where people are camping out overnight to get a passport. They actually had to call the police in this week when tempers boiled over 
outside of a Montreal passport office. Have a listen to this. This is a typical story here. Marie-Catherine Jean-Philippe and her efforts to get a passport in Montreal. Listen to her story here. I came here three times already. Three times, and I was turned back. There's people that have been waiting here since Friday. More than 72 hours sleeping outdoors in the cold, in the rain, and still they're in line. Okay, I spoke to the cabinet minister responsible for the passport service on the show earlier this week, Karina Gould, and we talked about these delays, these backlogs, people camping outside of these passport offices. I mean, this is ridiculous just to get a basic government service. People have to sleep out on the street. And I asked her, what's causing this problem? How are you going to fix it? Here's what she had to say to me. I'm equally concerned about the situation and, uh, you know, not pleased with it either. Um, you know, after two years um, of pandemic restrictions and particularly travel restrictions, once those lifted, uh, there was a lot of people who understandably wanted to travel. You know, quite frankly, we got a big volume all at the same time, kind of between February and April. We continue to get um, a huge volume of applications each week. Um, and so we were receiving more volume than we have capacity to process. Okay, Federal Cabinet Minister Karina Gould speaking to me on the show earlier this week. So once again, blaming this surge in passport demands for the problem. You know, they, they I guess it appears they didn't see it coming. They were warned about this, though. I mean, they were told months ago, look, you better get ready. People are going to start traveling again. They're lifting the vaccine mandates. They're lifting these other restrictions. Of course, people are going to be traveling. Of course, there's going to be an uptick in demands for a passport. You better be ready. And I spoke to the president of the union responsibly. He said they warned them months ago. And yet they keep continue to act like they didn't see this coming or this was somehow a surprise. Let's check. Let's discuss now with my guest, Duncan D. He is the former chief operating officer at Air Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Duncan, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Duncan, when you hear the cabinet minister responsible here, Karina Gould, continue to talk about, well, we don't have the capacity to process all these, all this demand for passports that sort of came out of the blue. What, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Well, my mind explodes, really. Um, huh. You've got a situation where the federal government is actually processing fewer passport applications now every week than they did before the pandemic. So they've got, she's admitted they haven't laid off a single passport uh, processing employee, uh, but they've got um, 55% of the number of uh, applications they're processing every week now versus uh, before the pandemic, and they still can't get it done. They were processing between 90 and 98,000 passport applications every single week, in 2019, and now they're processing somewhere in the vicinity of 54 and 55,000 per week. So it's dropped significantly, and they still can't get over it. Um, you know, the other thing, Mike, that you you mentioned is they were warned about this months ago. I mean, just yeah. like I warned myself, um, the uh, transport minister, that there would be crowds at the airport months ago, um, and they're only acting now. And so the minister seems to be doing what her colleague, the transport minister, is doing, which is acting late and not acting strongly enough. Yeah, okay. I think you raised some great points there, especially about the the number of passports that are being processed right now. And we're still 
like not nowhere near what it was pre-pandemic. So every time I hear them talk about, oh, this surge came out of nowhere, you know, you go, you have to, don't have to go back that far in time when we were processing way more passports than we're processing right now. So I don't get this surge argument. I mean, if they haven't laid anyone off, what is the problem here? Like we've heard reports about a lot of people or uh, passport officials are working from home. Is that the problem? Like just not enough people have been called back to the office or? Look, I mean, I think that, that we've we've got a couple of things going on here. Um, you know, there was a report a couple of days ago uh, by uh, Matt Gurney that he was at the Toronto Passport Office. He's a reporter out of Toronto. He was at the Toronto Passport Office. There were 17 service windows, and at any given time, no more than six were staffed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when he counted, in fact, sometimes that would be the maximum. Sometimes there would be less than four that were staffed. So if this is really as big of a crisis, wouldn't you have all 17 windows staffed if it's as big a, a crisis as the minister's saying? And the other thing is, is that nothing is stopping the minister from opening passport offices more hours. This is the only crisis on the planet that is being managed between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday to Friday. So it's it's like the, the minister likes to talk about, you know, thoughts and prayers and how she really wants to feel the pain that Canadians are feeling when they're um, applying for a passport. But what's she doing? You know, she's talking about it and we hear about yeah. more resources, but where are the added hours? Where are the more, you know, the added windows um, at the passport service centers? It just seems to be just more and more talk. And so really, like you said earlier, they, they knew this was coming. The unions yeah. warned them and they did nothing. Yeah, let's have another listen here to Karina Gould. So she is the federal cabinet minister responsible for the passport service. And she was my guest here on the show earlier this week. And she, here she is talking a little bit more about uh, how this problem kind of surprised them. Have a listen. In previous years, um, passports were really predictable, right? We you know, knew how many people were applying based on the number of new citizens, the number of babies born, um, you know, the number of people who needed renewals. Um, and they happened, you know, pretty consistently over a 12-month period. Um, we're talking about a big influx in just a couple of months. And so the best kind of analogy that I can provide is, you know, you're on the highway and it's rush hour. Um, you know, we're, we're in rush hour when it comes to passports. Okay, so she's saying this is like rush hour. Well, I don't know. You, you normally know when rush hour is going to happen. They should have known that rush hour was coming. But like you said earlier, we're still not back to pre-pandemic levels for demands on the passport system. So what do you think about her explanation there? You know, I really don't buy it, but it's really, it seems to be the government's playbook right now. Everyone seems to be surprised. You know, this minister is surprised. The minister of transport is surprised. The minister of immigration is surprised. The minister of immigration is dealing with a backlog of over 2 million applications for um, visas, visitors' visas to come to Canada. You know, so, you know, it, it just seems to be a government that has been caught off guard by its own actions. You know, they, yeah. they haven't figured this out on their own, despite all the warnings they got. Speaking to Duncan D, former executive at Air Canada about Canada's passport problems. We've talked a lot about this on the show. I've interviewed people on the show who've gone through nightmarish waits trying to get 
a passport, some people getting really desperate, especially when travel dates are approaching. This is Anne Marie Gibson and her troubles trying to get a passport, just renewal, not even a new passport, just a renewal for her daughter. Here's what she had to say to me on an earlier show. I applied yeah. mid-January and waited and waited till mid-April and started yeah. getting antsy, hadn't heard anything, hadn't heard anything. Um, finally got a call back late April that the passport had been rejected. Yeah, she said she had a nightmarish situation trying to resolve that for her daughter who was going to a sporting tournament in the United States. Here she is talking about how stressful this has been for her and her family. Have a listen. It was a long time. It was very stressful, very stressful. It was hard on her, hard on me, the team, the coaches, the chaperones, the the travel agent, you know, like there was a lot involved. I'm sure you've heard, Duncan, a lot of similar stories from people who are just going through the stress. I mean, this is a basic government service we're talking about here. And, and, and look, what, look what's happened to it. Your thoughts? Look, it is a basic government service. It's something which Canadians pay for. This is not something yeah. that's free. It's a, it's, the government has a monopoly on issuing passports. So it's not like Canadians go, can go anywhere else to get the service. And they've completely failed Canadians. It's just like, as, as you and I have talked often before about, you know, there, there are basic services everywhere at the airports and at the passport office and visa offices that don't seem to be working. And, you know, if this was the provincial government, the equivalent would be people's driver's licenses not being renewed. You know, yeah. could you imagine if the BC Ministry of uh, Tor- uh, sorry Transportation stopped um, renewing driver's license, what chaos that would uh, result in. Well, this is the federal equivalent, and they've completely failed here. Yeah, what do you think now about the minister saying that she's on top of this file and she's she's doing her best to fix it? So, like, I appreciated that she was at, she actually came on the show and took some took so, uh, some tough questions on it. Now she is saying that um, they are trying to fix it. So she said in Montreal, for example they started sending passport office managers out onto the street to talk to people who are waiting in the line and asking people when are their travel dates and the people who have in the most desperate situation, like they're traveling the next day, they're being prioritized and moved to the front of the line. So they're like triaging it. So the people with the most in the most desperate situation are allowed to move up in the line. Like, that's a pretty desperate measure here to try and fix this. But what do you think about what, what they're trying to do to fix it? Look, I, I, I welcome anything they try to do to fix this because it is such a desperate situation for so many Canadians at the cusp of the busiest travel season of the year. The one thing I've got to say is the passport application itself says, do not make any travel arrangements until you have your passport in hand. So when you know, passport office managers go around uh, asking people to go back home because they don't have an imminent uh, travel reservation. They're basically just telling people who have followed the rules, trying to get their passports ahead of a trip, uh, that they're doing it wrong. And so what they're in fact encouraging is people, you know, coming as late as possible to get their passport. Look, I I, I think everyone has a right to get a passport and they should get their passport in a timely manner. But you don't solve this problem by creating another one where people yeah. who are in fact planning 
are being penalized for that. Duncan, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike.